The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hello, and welcome back to The Wiser Podcast. I'm Cizu Mbofu-Walsh. Professor Shireen Hasim is a South African political scientist, historian, and scholar of gender studies, currently the Canada 150 Research Chair in Gender and African Politics at Carleton University, and is a visiting professor at Wiser. In this podcast, she sketches a biography of Winnie Matigizela Mandela's political life, which breaks through binary narratives of damnation and redemption. She analyzes how others have written Winnie Matigizela Mandela. She explains the approach she has taken to writing the life of Winnie Mandela and reflects on what Matigizela Mandela's life means and might mean more than two years after her death in 2018. This episode is released in tandem with another by author Sisonge Msimang, who speaks about her experience of writing Winnie Mandela. Winnie Madikisela Mandela is an inescapable figure in South African politics and history. No other woman occupies the place in South African politics that Winnie Madikisela Mandela does. She transcends political parties, generations and ideologies. Every South African, it would seem, has their preferred version of Winnie, that single name that signals the intimacy of the relationships people across the world imagine they have with her, the sense of knowing her, not only in the world, but in their own lives, as perhaps the representation of themselves, whether that is their most powerful, freedom-loving selves, or the part of their self that is most unwanted, most shameful, most hard to come to terms with. It's not surprising that many South Africans cannot be neutral in their views on her, placing her either as an icon of resistance, the mother of the nation, or as an unrepentant and violent woman, a kind of Lady Macbeth. These binary ways of reading Winnie are rooted in political signalling. They are a kind of shorthand of where the speaker fits into the landscape of South African politics. Both sides have a clear position on the balance of forces between structure and agency. Winnie is either morally corrupt, therefore full of agency, or she is an exploited victim of her circumstances and cannot therefore be held accountable. Winnie Mandela's life, like that of all heroes and villains in history, raises the large questions about the human condition. Those having to do with the ability to transcend suffering, ethical dilemmas of whether, when and how to respond to evil, how to exercise individual and collective responsibility, and the distinction between fact and truth. How might one understand such a figure? The question that every writer on Winnie Mandela faces is this, do you come to redeem her or to damn her? Two writers, Jabulo Ndebele and Sisonke Msimang, have approached Winnie as familiars, as members of a family. Njabula Ndebele approaches and then retreats from the familiar, placing her instead in the vastness of historical figures. Sisonke Msimang, on the other hand, bravely steps into the intimate space between mother and daughter, as mother and daughter, excavating from her own experiences of both these statuses to try to get under the skull and into the heart of Winnie, 
to use the imaginative possibilities of direct address. By putting herself right into Winnie's life, she dramatically reveals the tenseness, brittleness and tenderness of Winnie's life. Sisonke wanted, needed, to resurrect the best parts of Winnie for the future, providing a decisively usable ancestor for young feminists. Jabula Ndebele, on the other hand, distances himself by writing Winnie lyrically as an incarnation of the Greek mythological Penelope. I used a more pedestrian and obvious distancing strategy. I read her as I would any political figure and began by asking what shaped her ideas and her actions. As a feminist scholar, I also ask what the connections are between her private and her public lives. These are simple questions, and yet they remain startling questions. After all, women have been so misrecognized and misrepresented in the National Archive as figures whose status derives from their fathers, husbands or sons, and whose actions therefore must be understood within a separate, feminized, one might say maternalized, strand of politics that is secondary to the male plotline. Was Winnie, after all, no more than the wife of Nelson Mandela? Who would she be without him? Well, who are women without men? Do they have ideas? Can they act? If they're always victims, do they have moral responsibility? Winnie is a usefully inconvenient figure, the kind feminist scholars relish. One who does not neatly occupy the moral ground that she claims or in which she is located, or indeed to which she is relegated. To treat Winnie Madikisela Mandela as just another political figure enabled me to approach her with the analytic tools one might use for any political leader. I began by trying to understand her within the fullness of her life, as someone with a political purpose who crafted a role for herself and took the opportunities that arose to make a revolutionary life. Using Elika Boma's frame for thinking about the male heroic nationalist figure, I plotted the ways in which one might see, after Winnie had died, the construction and imposition of a linear narrative of a genealogy for a female heroic nationalist. I could trace by these devices offered by Elika Boma the ways in which the life of a female leader was legitimated metonymically with that of a male leader as symbolically necessary and inevitable. This frame opened up the how, the how of the nationalist script of Mother of the Nation, seeing how it could be both a bridgehead for a political life as well as its cracking point. One could plot the overcoming of childhood hardships through the literal and metaphorical journey from small village to city, the sublimation of suffering of self into suffering of and on behalf of the nation, and the fulfillment of destiny. Tantalizingly, from the academic's point of view, Winnie's life could be traced as a series of textual interventions and self-inventions, from her book Part of My Soul Went With Him, to her work with Fatima Mir on a biography of Nelson Mandela, Higher Than Hope, to 491 Days, her prison memoir. In this construction of a life, 
by myself, but most especially by Winnie. What is illuminated is how few spaces there were for women to lead struggles against colonialism and apartheid. What struggles there were tended to be as the helpmates of political leaders or as the leaders of separate organisations for women. And Winnie had ambitions beyond those. She became politically active almost as soon as she arrived in Johannesburg at 17 years of age, studying to be a social worker. Meeting, falling in love with and marrying Nelson Mandela, of course, dramatically changed her life. But this can't be separated from her own activism. After all, Nelson was already married to Evelyn when he met Winnie. Evelyn did not choose a political life, quite the contrary. So something else was happening here that cannot be ascribed simply to being the wife of the leader of a revolutionary movement. In fact, Winnie saw herself as being as much a revolutionary as Nelson. In the decades that followed, she joined in the peaceful activities of the ANC Women's League, but also in the underground movement and in Umkontowesi's where the ANC's armed wing. She saw herself as a soldier and she acted as one. She was not spared by the state and the combination of her marriage to a high-profile leader, her own independent and fierce activism, combined to invoke intense scrutiny and intrusion by the security forces. Her gender did not protect her from direct violence, nor did she seek to use it as a shield. In 1969, she was held in solitary confinement for 491 days, during which she was brutally tortured and came close to suicide. She emerged from prison traumatized and so dissociated that her response for the subsequent decades centered on articulating the necessity of a violent response to the state. She drew close to the post-1976 youth who were becoming increasingly disaffected with leadership exercised from afar from exile or from underground. The 1980s were a bleak period in South African history when the state and liberation movements faced off in a battle. Unequal in military weapons or in access to the institutions of power, the ANC and the newly formed United Democratic Front clung instead to moral power. They did it with great difficulty under conditions that were not amenable to arguments for restraint. And there's no doubt that Winnie Mandela made it even harder as she positioned herself on the side of youth activists becoming increasingly enraged by the state and impatient with their leadership. She grew in popularity during this period, becoming close to the street, increasingly going outside of the authority structures of the ANC, MK and the UDF. Urging the use of violent methods, she alienated many of her former allies. The worst effect of this was her complicity in the violence wrought by her private team of bodyguards, the Mandela United football team in Soweto. By her implication in the deaths of a child, the activist Stompy Sape, and her friend Dr. Abubakar Asfat and in her infamous homophobic defense of her actions in supposedly saving Stompy from someone she termed a pedophile. Her legitimacy was indelibly marred. Winnie's politics, many felt, had become unrestrained. 
being outside of the ordinary processes of accountability, and these existed even in the underground, created numerous problems, both for Winnie herself and for the anti-apartheid movements. Political violence, however nobly intentioned, can run dangerously out of control if not contained within at least some forms of normative authority and restrained by collective organizational discipline. And so it was with Winnie. In this respect, she became convenient, it must be said, for the apartheid state. They planted opportunities for her to make mistakes and they goaded her with excesses in ways that she most never likely quite understood, lures to which she fell prey. The paradox of this period is that the moral claim that apartheid was a crime against humanity was advanced globally to a significant extent by invigorating the figure of Nelson Mandela as the epitome of the noble leader of a noble cause. Winnie and Nelson became the figurehead, the, the personification of the struggle of South African people. It was a project that absolutely depended on Winnie as the other pole of the romanticized relationship between Nelson and Winnie, a metaphor for the nationalist relationship between leaders and people of the heteronormative vision of the fusion between family and nation. But there's also no doubt that in responding to Winnie in the late 1980s, the ANC and the UDF drew on the gender double standard that delegitimized her by casting her as the punitive mother, the rogue element. This lasted well into the early 1990s. It was Nelson who, after his release, sought to redeem her, bringing her back into the fold and giving her a role in the post-apartheid government. Tragically, private trauma and public irresponsibility collapsed into each other once again. The marriage could not withstand what imprisonment and torture of both of its partners had done to it. Winnie herself could not submit to the discipline of life as an elected official with responsibilities having to follow legislated rules. She erred, misstepped, and was very quickly once again outside the party fold. In the mid-1990s, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission offered her a unique moment in which she could recast her role as a leader. Some people, not least Archbishop Desmond Tutu, thought it could be the opportunity for her to ask for the forgiveness of the nation for her misdeeds. Others, mostly white South Africans, thought she stood for all that was evil in the revolutionary forces, and they wanted to see her humiliated, not just contrite. Winnie, however, stood for her own kind of testimony, one that did not absolve or absorb, but rather expose. Not Penelope, but stubborn Antigone, bearing witness to suffering and violence caused by apartheid. She refused the suggestion of moral equivalence between apartheid's crimes and the actions of the National Liberation Movement. Um, she refused to be the body on whom exculpation of the whole ANC was achieved, the sacrifice for the sake of a, a dubious peace. She was attuned to the ways in which the TRC was already being read by radicals as a mode of whitewashing, a process 
that required confession and forgiveness of black people, but very little in the way of accountability from white people. By refusing to tell her story in this scripted form, by refusing to speak in the terms demanded by the TRC, Winnie was rendering the entire foundation of the TRC unstable. But she also exposed her anger at the moderation of the revolutionary ANC into the Liberal Democratic government. She succeeded indeed in making the TRC not a break with the past, but a perpetrator of abuse that stood in a long line of police informers, torturers, deceiving lovers and lawyers who were sent to discipline her. And by doing that, by making that performative act at the TRC, she stood as the sentinel for the radicals who were seeing in the transition to democracy a defeat of the revolution, not its victory. Winnie's cachet stems from this position that was articulated so clearly in this moment at the height of the country's romance with the new democracy that the past could not be easily contained and certainly not erased. So she stood, credibly or not, for the virtues of a community violently treated by apartheid and colonialism, for remembering the crimes that for many remain unhealable, and for whom justice is cast in terms other than those offered by the TRC. She stood for rejecting the act of reconciliation as the foundation for moving forward. She stood against the representative politics of the post-apartheid state, which she saw as a social pact aimed at drawing a line under the past and thereby forgetting it. In the shadows, unresolved, are the ongoing questions, of course, of individual complicities, of collective delusions and fears, the fantasies that violence can successfully be met with violence, whether indeed her own past is healable for the victims um, of her actions, for what to do when the revolutionary dreams came up against realpolitik. Perhaps at the end one might reflect that this was actually the kind of role quintessentially occupied by women in nationalism, the memory keepers who carry grief and anger and hope, the time travellers who simultaneously look backward to bear witness to the past and forward in hope to the future. Mm -hmm.